Well, we're going to um, just spend a few minutes looking at um, the, the next part of the book of Judges. And we've been looking at this uh, over September, thinking about the stories, these ancient stories. They're happening around 1,200 years before Jesus uh, was born. But we're kind of wanting to ask ourselves, what do we see there that can both inspire us, can speak to us? How do we see ourselves in these stories? Every generation has people who God sets apart and and disturbs enough that they might see things differently than everybody else. Every generation, God gets hold of people and says to them, I want you to act courageously. I want you to be involved in stuff that you never would have imagined. I want you to make a difference. And every generation, God gives people the resources to do the unthinkable. And to do the remarkable. And no matter how bad the situations we find ourselves in, God is always raising up people who can actually make a difference. And normally, they are the last people you might expect. But God does it over and over again. This morning, I want to tell you a story. I want to read a story with you about exactly that. But before we do that, let's play a film of a a global company who would wish this to be true for themselves.
It's a phone. I think if you want to, uh, uh, to hear the longing of a generation, uh, the people and the artists and uh, the writers who are doing it the best are those who make adverts, actually. Because they're appealing to the longing in all of us that actually something might be different. And uh, it's Apple, it's a computer, it's a phone. But actually, as a company, what they're wanting to sell you is it can be very different. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that as a church and make that our advert? We see things differently. We're going to do the stuff that really matters, the deep stuff, not the surface stuff. We're going to change. We're going to be able to make a difference. We're going to be the ones who keep trusting there is another way, as they said. So this story. This is not a story that will be well known to you, so I'm going to take a little bit of time to ensure that you've got who's who, <laughs> all right? Because if you don't get who's who, you're going to get mixed up in the story. So meet the cast of this story. We've got the Canaanites led by King Jabin and the commander-in-chief is Sisera. All right, so he's the guy overseeing the whole armies and the armies are incredibly strong. They have weapons of mass destruction. They have 900, the text will tell us, 900 iron chariots. And the point that the narrator is telling you is these are the weapons of mass destruction. This is the powerful army. King Jabin, you're going to just hear about him in the story. You won't see him. But Sisera, the commander-in-chief, is going to be the main, one of the main characters. Okay. And then you've got the Israelites. And the Israelites at this time are being led by a woman called Deborah. Now... When you read this, it's like, oh, that's unusual. For we've not really had this in the story of God's people till now, that a woman has actually been set aside to lead the people of God. And I just want to quickly say that in some Christian circles, what they say is, well, Deborah did it because there wasn't a man good enough. The text doesn't say that. All right? It doesn't. Is that all right, Marlene? The text doesn't say that. God raises Deborah up in the same way as he raises all the other guys that have been mentioned thus far and will be mentioned going on. But the fella that's involved is Barak, who's the commander-in-chief of the Israelites, this ragtag bobtail people, but Barak is the commander-in-chief of those. So he's like the equivalent. And in the middle, you've got a couple. The guy's called Heber, and the woman's called Jael. And they are allies of the Canaanites. So Heber and his sort of family clan have made a, a, a sort of a, a contract. They've made a treaty with the Canaanites. But they're also related by history to the Israelites. So they kind of sit in between. And Jael is a woman who, um, well, as you will read, um, is quite some woman. All right. It involves a tent peg, and uh, it's one of the reasons that men have never really been that keen on women putting tents up ever since. <laughs> All right. So we've got Canaanites. It'll, if you don't know the story, it'll make sense in a minute. The Canaanites, 
and Israelites, and then in the middle you have these people, Heber and Jael. So this is the story. You've got a wicked king, a fierce general, a wise female leader, a humble soldier, and a determined woman. Okay? Now, a wise female leader, a humble soldier, a determined woman. It's not surprising that actually this story is going to, they are going to be the heroes in this story. But this is the story. So if you've got a Bible or you can grab uh, access to one, um, we're going to look at Judges 4. Okay, so the book of Judges and Judges chapter 4. Are you still with me? All right. It's really important you're with me. I don't want to lose you along the way. Otherwise, it'll just be blah, 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 blah. So try and stay with me. As we read this story, we got a little map. All right. Now, as Ian said to me when we were running through this before the service began, he said, oh, it's geography. Um, but we've got a map so you can see what's actually going on as we read the story. I want you to get the feel of this as much as anything else. So let's read it. Verse one. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Now, if you weren't with us last week, just very quickly to remind you, Ehud was the bloke with the disabled right hand who was left-handed. Everybody overlooked him, but God used him because of his weakness. Not in spite of, but because of his weakness. And once he died, then after, uh, it, it, it all fell apart again. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Okay, so I've got to get my glasses on now. I'm getting to the age where I'm, I'm going to need a string, which is um, not a cool thing. So here's where the king reigns up there. So this is Israel, okay? And Jerusalem's way down here. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee, obviously, that's where kind of like all Jesus' activity will happen much, much later. But that's Hazor there, that's where the king is. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth uh, Hagoyim, which is here. Okay? So that's where the king's got his base, that's where the commander in chief reigns, and there's the chariots. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Here, the 20-year mark. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went up to her to have a dispute settled. Now, this isn't on this map, but that's kind of like below the bottom of the map, all right? Below West Manasseh. That's where she is based. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I'll lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. Okay, so this is where we're going now. So, um, where are we? Um, hang on. I've got, <laughs> I've got to do two things here, I'm struggling. So Kedesh is up there in the north. That's where uh, um, Barak was and said, let's go. You bring your troops with you. We're going to go to Mount Tabor there. And, I'm, and she says, I'm going to get Sisera to come down here 
and we're going to take him on. Now, you kind of want to just pause for a moment and go, what sort of woman is Deborah? Well, she certainly is wise because people come over to get their disputes settled. She's a wise woman. She's a married woman, but she's got the task of leading a country. And she's a fearless woman because she has said, I'm going to get Sisera with his 900 chariots. I'm going to bring him down here. And Barak, I want you to come and go to Mount Tabor and get ready to take him on. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. And there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes. And 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. And he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. So their family had moved up north. And when they told Sisera that Barak, sons of Abanoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. And Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord's given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So, um, so Barak has got his army there. They go down here to Kishon. Um, Sisera's come down and, well... A battle has taken place, but it's more than just a battle, actually. There's a song that will follow. And in the song, it says one of the things that happened is there's a massive thunderstorm. And it seems that in the midst of the thunderstorm, in the midst of the mud, in the midst of the water, there, these chariots that people had thought were the weapons of mass destruction, they get bogged down. And so this army are able to overcome them. What happens next? Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth, Hagoyim, at the south there, and all Sisera's fell, uh, troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Hebor the Kenite. Now, so he's gone from here, Sisera, the commander-in-chief, and he's gone all the way up here to try and um, sort of escape, really, and take refuge. So it's quite a long way. Are you trying to tell me, uh, Pat, that I make a better door than a window? Uh, I've got a lot going on here, Pat. I've got my glasses, I've got the text, I've got this. And now I've got to think about where I'm standing. You don't realise how much pressure I'm under right now, all right? funny... <laughs> See, if Ian was doing this, it'd be much easier because you see round him, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Sit down. How do you mean sit down? I can't sit down and do all this. I've got too much. I've got a step to worry about now. Okay, so here we go. We're at the top of the map. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered a tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you, is there a man in here, say no. 
But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. (laughs) I don't know why you think that's funny, but (laughs) you might expect him to die at the end of that. Just then, Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Isn't it a fantastic story? I mean, obviously not for Sisera, but... um, Interesting. And I think the point I want to make, amongst others, is that this happened in real time, in real space, in real places. All right. And that's why sometimes it's helpful just when you're reading to actually have a map in front of you and go, okay, let me get some idea of scale here. What's actually happening? Because otherwise you use these names and it could be in the moon for all that you know where those places are. But actually, this happened in place and time. But what's the story about? Well, one of the things this story is about is when a woman says, enough is enough. 20 years of people are being oppressed. And a woman decides, enough. Enough. Jabin is a powerful king. The Canaanites were a powerful empire. And Sisera, as I kept on saying, has all these weapons But one woman who's got a leadership qualities and leadership capacity and leadership role stands up and goes, enough now. Enough. We are not going to be in this situation any longer. Things have to change. It's a woman who looked at the reality of the power and said, I'm not scared. And I think God will be with us enough to make a difference around here And a woman says, it's time for us to take um, a stand. And just in case you do, I mean, you know, this is is not a story to muck about with, really. In chapter 5, it's the only chapter in the book of Judges that actually they have a song. They often did at the end of sort of a period of great liberation. They would sing. And Judges 5 is the only song in the book of Judges. But in the song, the song of Deborah, the song that they sang by Deborah for Deborah, in chapter 5, verse 28, as part of the song, part of this is said, through the window... Um, so in other words, they, uh, they talk about jail uh, in verse 24. Blessed women be jail, the wife of Heba the Kenite, the most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the laborer's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, They're not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two for each man. Colourful garments as plunder for Sisera, colourful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck, all this as plunder. Sisera's own mother's saying, 
Oh, he's just out raping. That's where he is. He's just raping women. And Deborah goes, enough. No more. No more. No more violence. We're going to stand in the path of the weapons of mass destruction. We're going to stand in the path of power. We're going to stand in the path of evil. We're going to stand in the path of oppression. It's over. We're going to do something. And Deborah says, it's enough. And she says to a man called Barak, I want you to go and get the army because we're going. And Barak says to Deborah, I'm only going to go if you come with me. Now, it's interesting when you read what people have written about this, because some people think that Barak's a bit of a wimp. The language, just if you're interested, is exactly the same language that Moses uses when he speaks to God in Exodus and and God says, go, and Moses says, I'm not going if you don't go with me. It's that sort of same desire. And he says to Deborah, I'm not going if you don't come. But he's not a wimp. And in Hebrews, he's there as one of the heroes. How's he a hero? Well, he has to take Sisera on. But I think he's also a hero, and I think it's legitimate to say he's a hero. He's not cowardly, but he recognises Deborah, and he recognises her gifts. And in the most patriarchal society that we perhaps would have known in our ages, he says, we need this to do, we need to do it together. Barak is humble enough to be called and told, now's the time. He's humble enough to be told to step up. He's humble enough to be told by a woman, man up. This is your moment. Come on. And he's humble enough to go. I need you with me. Someone's written, you have only one life. Live like you want it to actually mean something. And Barak did. And then you have this final piece of the story. The woman who takes Sisera in. And people do struggle with this bit of the story because it feels like she's betraying Sisera because Sisera knows her. And uh, Jael says, yeah, you can come into my tent. Yeah, I'll give you food and drink. And when Sisera thinks he's escaped, Jael takes the tent peg and rams it through his head. There's loads we could say. One of the things is that jail, that lady, again a woman, not a husband, but her, she said, today I'm choosing my side. Today I'm choosing which side I'm on. Today I'm choosing who I'm going to stand for. They were in treaty with the king of Canaan, and that was a smart move, to be honest, because they had the riches, and they had the power, and they had the technology. But on that day, Jael said, I'm not going to go with the empire. I'm going to go with my God's people. I'm going to go with my family, God's people. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to do what I think is the right thing. And I'm going to use the, all that I've got to stop this man.
She's a resourceful woman. She acts decisively. And then she acts. And in church, we might go, ooh, it's all a bit nasty, isn't it? But bad times call for courageous actions. And actually, what all of these people are doing are saying, I'm going to head up and face on the evil I see around me. I'm going to do something. Someone has written, a guy called Erwin McManus, who's a church leader um, in, uh, in America, a very cool church leader in America. But he wrote this, the epicenter of creativity and imagination should be the church, reflecting the character and glory of God. In other words, it's as we come together, as we are the church, that actually the creativity and the imagination that says, actually we see that things could be better and different around here, and people say, and I'm going to act. And just a little bit of thinking about this suggested to me that we have form for this in the church. It was the Christians in the 18th century who were at the forefront of the slavery, anti-slavery movement. It was Wilberforce who was from the privileged classes of Great Britain, but who almost wrecked his own career in that circle by saying, it is not good enough. I'm no longer going to side with empire. I'm no longer going to side with riches. I'm no no longer am I going to side with what's pragmatic. We're going to do what's right. And we're going to fight against the anti-slavery laws. In the 19th century, it was Christians who were at the forefront of saying, it's not right that we use children as economic units of production by stuffing them up chimneys and down mines. It was Christians who said, actually, enough's enough. We're not going to go with what the rest of people are saying, well, that's how the world works. It's Christians who stood and said, actually, enough. Much closer to our own times, it's Christians who were at and really powerfully used Uh, in the equal racial rights, particularly in America, who said it's not enough that black people are treated uh, in such a poor way. It was Christians who were at the heart of saying, if people are suicidal, we need to be able to help them. And it was the Samaritans were born out of the work of the church, of someone saying, it's not good enough that people commit suicide because they have nowhere to turn. And in a church in London, someone said, we could make a difference about that. It's Christians who've been at the heart of the Jubilee 2000 all those years ago when they said, actually, we could free the debts of third world nations. They do not need to be, have the same infrastructure that has been there forever. We could actually liberate them from their own debt. It was Christians that were doing that. It's Christians that were at the heart of the hospice movement who said to people who were dying in terminal conditions, it's not good enough that either they die at home alone or they die in the, the bigger context of hospitals. We could actually create a hospital where people find dignity at dealing with terminal diseases. It's Christians who are doing that. It's Christians who've been uh, the fuel and the resource engine for the Christians Against Poverty to say to ordinary people in ordinary lives, in ordinary streets like we live in, it's not good enough that you get trapped in poverty. It's ordinary Christians that said, actually, we're in a situation at the moment in our country where we need to give people food. Let's do food banks. It's Christians and churches that are doing that. 
It was Christians who said, children need education. And all around Manchester, you can still see on buildings, ragged schools for the poor children. It was Christians that were doing that. If you were black Pentecostals, you'd be weeping, uh, hooping and hollering by now. <laughs> it's Christians who said the lonely and the aged, the children and the young people, the exiles, the asylum seekers, the prisoners, the sex offenders who come out. It's Christians who say enough's enough. It's Christians who go, it's not just about enjoying the blessings of the gospel. It's Christians who say, I've looked out the window, enough's enough. It's humble Christians who go, I can't do it on my own. I'm not frightened. And it's, it's humble Christian men who say, I'm not frightened of women. I don't need to put women down in order to have a role in God. I've got Christian friends who see the whole thing about egalitarianism in church differently, and I understand them, and I understand their position, but I think they're wrong. I think that actually what God is longing for is a humility that says we need each other. And I think God uses people like jail, doing stuff that makes some of us feel uncomfortable, to make a difference. Because we're following the one who is the Lord of the revolution. He's the Lord of the revolution. And we've said it loads of times, when you pray, may your kingdom come. We're praying, let it be different. In your workplace, what do you see that you go, actually, enough's enough? In your neighborhood, what are you saying that you go, enough's enough? In your families, what are you saying? This is enough is enough. This might well be your moment. I feel really passionate about this. What is it? What is it that God's saying to us? To us as a very ordinary, medium-sized, small ch- uh, medium-sized local church. Come on, folks. Look out the window. What's God saying to you? Look out from yourself. What's your enough's enough? 20 years. But today I'm going, no, enough's enough. I'm going to take a stand. Now, you know, you read the stories like this and you know the end of it. But they didn't know the end of it when they began the story. What fool would think you'd take on 900 iron chariots? Let's be honest. In those days, the guy with the iron chariots gets to win every time. You don't know how the story ends, but you know this is your moment. And at the end of the song, in the fifth chapter, Deborah sings this. May all your enemies perish. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. May you be like the sun that rises in its strength. Let's pray.
Father God, it's a fantastic story, but it's a story that needs to be repeated again and again and again, and has been again and again and again in the lives of people like us. And Lord, some of us are involved in that whole world of saying enough's enough. And in the room, there are people who, and you're already involved in that, and you said it, and you're doing it. Lord, I want to pray that your blessing and your uh, perseverance would be upon them. Lord, when they feel like giving up, Lord, I pray they might know the blessings that you bring and the courage and the resilience you bring to them. But Lord, for some of us who wonder, Lord, may you see, may you help us see what we need to say enough's enough for. Give us eyes to see. Let's look out of our own window, Lord, and see what it is that breaks our heart. And Lord, we pray for those of us who might need this, that you would break our heart for the things that break yours. We kind of know the danger of praying a prayer like that, because you will do it. But Lord, will you break our heart for the things that break yours? And I pray that we'll be a people of courage and humility and resourcefulness. And that we won't be afraid. But we will be engaged. Lord, may we be like the sun that rises. Lord, we ask it in your name.